Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. As always, I am your host, Nico Perino, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Sean Stevens. He's a first-time guest on the podcast, and he is FIRE's Senior Research Fellow in Polling and Analytics, and we are going to discuss our just-released 2020 college free speech ranking. Sean, welcome onto the show. Thanks for having me, Nico. Happy to be here. So this is Wednesday. We released the rankings yesterday. It's a project, I looked at my calendar, that we've been working on since, well, we had our first big meeting on May 3rd of 2019. We'd been kind of talking about it in uh, one-on-one conversations and over email before that, but we first got together with the big group that worked on this project on May 3rd. And then we later brought in College Pulse, which was our polling analytics company, or they actually administered the survey and they helped us with the one big question we had on May 3rd, which was, how do you rank a bunch of different colleges across the country? How do you rank their free speech climates uh, by polling students on those individual campuses about their attitudes and thoughts about the climates? You know, one of the ways to do it is to ask the colleges to give you access to their students to interview or survey them. But, you know, Colleges for a project like this aren't going to be too inclined to give you access to their data. And that would be a huge undertaking, a huge process, and and probably involve a lot of negotiation uh, with the colleges. But College Pulse is this unique company that has a panel of college students, thousands, hundreds of thousands of college students across the country with significant enough samples on a number of campuses that you can then pull these students ask them about their attitudes about free speech, ask them about the climate for free speech on their campus and get a result that that you can then do a statistical analysis of. And that was something that we didn't have for years. I mean, it's really only something that with College Pulse has become available to people that want to poll college students in the last couple of years. So it's really exciting. And And the poll was meant to ask answer, I should say, one simple question, which was, what are the best colleges for free speech in America? We always been able to rate their speech codes because uh, we have lawyers on staff who comb through the student codes of handbook and other policies at these colleges and rate those policies for First Amendment compliance. Of course, public universities are required by law (laughs) to follow the First Amendment. Private universities that promise free expression, uh, we rate their policies on a First Amendment standard. But that's all we were really able to do. And then we, of course, had anecdotal evidence about cases we had at schools, but we didn't really have a way to systematically analyze what students think about the climate for free speech on their campus. So that when students, prospective students, asked us about a school, or their parents for that matter, we didn't have a scientific analysis to really show them aside from the spotlight rating. So that's why we're really excited about this survey. It's the largest ever survey of college students on their attitudes about free speech that has ever been conducted. The survey was fielded from April 1st to May 28th and had a sample of 19,969 undergraduates 
at the 55 college campuses that we rated. You know, Sean, I should say a few things about the survey that some of our listeners might be wondering. We did close the survey before the George Floyd protests started at the end of May. So some of the student attitudes that might have changed since those protests aren't reflected in the data here. And then there's the coronavirus, of course, uh, which is the weird variable. Uh, the coronavirus landed, uh, well, a lot of things started shutting down in March. So this was fielded, the survey, after the coronavirus had happened. Many colleges had already sent their students home. But I should note that all of the students that we surveyed had some experience in a classroom on campus uh, when this survey was uh, fielded. And insofar as they, they can remember what it was like, even if they weren't on campus. Uh, and then, of course, they had their experiences with online speech and instruction. In College Pulse, we asked them, we're doing this, they didn't see any strong divergence in the data collected for uh, the all of the surveys that they uh, done as a result of you know the coronavirus. So uh, we felt pretty good about that. So yeah, it's exciting stuff, Sean. Do you think we should uh, we should give our r- listeners the rankings? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, it's it's real exciting. You know, like you said, we it's it's been a, basically a year and a half uh, in development and and analysis, et cetera. So it's 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 nice to be on the other side of it finally. <laughs> yeah, and we hope to we hope to do it again and expand it to more than 55 colleges in the future. But of the 55 colleges that we ranked for or that we surveyed students for, uh, number one, University of Chicago, which didn't really come as a surprise to us, did it, Sean? No, it didn't. Uh, they've, you know, their their president has long been uh, very vocal uh, in public about uh, the university's support for free speech and free expression. Um, and the tradition there goes back uh, even longer than, you know, the last five to 10 years. Um, so it really did not come as a surprise. Yeah, it's it's kind of a proof of concept. This is a college or a university, I should say, that has, as you said, been very vocal about its commitment to free expression. It had, of course, the Chicago statement, which uh, dozens of universities have gone on to adopt that really um, you know, doubled down on its commitment to allowing all speech to occur on campus, regardless of how controversial it might be. So, you know, it, it receives FIRE's green light rating for free speech protective policies, and, and that's one of the factors that goes into these rankings. And we'll talk a little bit about that more later. But students seem to have gotten the message. They've gotten the message that um, their administration supports uh, the free expression of ideas, and they, um, you know, to a certain extent, feel more comfortable than a lot of these other schools, these students, uh, in expressing themselves. Yeah, and, and I, I would emphasize on on those two points, actually, that in our in our data and, and in the survey, we ask two questions about um, student perceptions on, on how much the administration supports free speech, free expression. And at the University of Chicago, it, it you know, the figures were basically at 90% for both uh, 90% for one of them, 88% for the other. Uh, so it's very clear that the students um, have received the message uh, from the administration. Uh, most of the other schools did not hit uh, percentages at that like at that level. So the other top schools, number two, Kansas State, mm-hmm. number three, Texas A&M, four, UCLA, five, Arizona State. Uh, at Coming in at number six, we have University of Virginia, then Duke, then Virginia Tech, at nine, we have Brown, which is an interesting school, right, Sean? <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, the only Ivy League in the top ten. 
Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think that one was probably the biggest surprise uh, out of schools in the top 10. Brown's ranking is one of the reasons. It's not the sole reason, but it's one of the reasons we decided to dig a bit deeper into the data and ultimately came up with the idea of producing an overall rank uh, and then ranking the school based on what liberal students said and conservative students said. In our dashboard, we've kind of expanded that and you can see kind of a bunch of different demographic categories with the ranking system. But our, our report- Yeah, and you can view all these rankings and yeah. sort them by different variables at speech.collegepulse.com. And, and two of the variables you're talking about, Sean, are ranked by liberals. Yeah and ranked by conservatives because we thought that there might be echo chambers yep. on some of these campuses, which make students, which are allow students to feel freer in expressing themselves. But that's obviously not something we want. And so Brown, which ranks number nine on the overall, when you factor in all the students, uh, actually, when you ask just conservatives about the environment at Brown, they come in at 35th. Yeah. And they come in, uh, in the, they come in again at the top, in the top 10 for liberals. I think they're like fifth or sixth or something like that. I don't remember off the top of my head where they are on that list, but uh, they come in strongly overall. They come in very strongly with the liberals and they don't do very well with conservatives. And then as we dig a little deeper uh, into the data, we can discover that um, in terms of self-identified and, and self-reported political ideology, Brown had the highest percentage of students that identified as liberal. And they had one of the lowest percentages identifying as conservative. So it's a very homogenous community. And so as Nico as you said, it, it seems like the over 80% of liberal students that occupy Brown's campus feel quite comfortable discussing ideas, presumably with each other. Um, but the, the small minority that don't fit in that category don't seem to feel the same way. They seem to have a different experience on campus. One of the other variables that people who visit the dashboard at speech.collegepulse.com can see is the rankings of the schools by ideological diversity. And as you said, Sean, um, Brown doesn't perform well. In fact, it performs worst. It's yep. number 55 for ideological diversity in our rankings uh, for ideological diversity. Um, the student population there is overwhelmingly liberal, and yep. it, that can create an echo chamber, a monoculture. If everyone around you thinks the same way as you do, you're probably going to be feel more comfortable uh, expressing what you, what you believe. I should note that coming in at the top, of ideological diversity with 34% liberal students, 34% moderate, and 31% conservative is Penn State, Pennsylvania State University. Uh, and I should note uh, my ego here, uh, Indiana University, my alma mater, comes <laughs> in at number four. And I do remember it being a campus with a lot of ideological diversity. Uh, it doesn't perform as well in the overall rankings. I think it's in the middle of the pack. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's in the top 20. It's uh, number 18. But some really interesting stuff to sort through there and ideological diversity is when we also rank the schools uh, by you know, women and men, how they responded to the questions, uh, racial minorities, uh, and then we have a, a Trump approval uh, category there. <laughs> so uh, rounding out the top 10 then is the University of Arizona. So those are your top 10. Uh, I'm going to skip now to the bottom, all the stuff in the middle. I'm going to just encourage people who are listening to go to the go to the rankings again speech.collegepulse.com to look at those but at the bottom 10 uh, we have at uh, what is that that would be uh, 40 46? 46 through 55 yeah so that would be University of South Carolina uh, and then you have Harvard uh, Harvard 
is a college that has always kind of been on fire's list. They seem to have a free speech controversy or uh, in recent memory, a due process controversy every year uh, and is always kind of in the running for consideration in our worst colleges for free speech list that we put to put out in in uh, in January, February of every year. So it wasn't any surprise that they landed on this list. They also have a red light uh, speech code rating. And then we have Wake Forest coming in at 47. Then Georgetown. Georgetown, like Harvard, is always on our list. Uh, Brigham Young University at 49. Sean, you want to talk a little bit about them? Yeah, they're a very interesting uh, comparison school for a school for something like Brown uh, in that I think uh, I think we're not at fire. We're we're not surprised that BYU uh, did badly overall. Uh, they're the only school uh, that we surveyed that actually has a warning rating, which is worse than a red light rating. Well, so it's, uh, it's a you know it's it's a rating that we give to colleges, often yeah. sectarian religious schools, yeah. uh, that just don't give students any free speech promises. They're private schools. They can value. Uh, they can value things above free expression. It's their free association right to place. In this case, you know, certain religious values yep. uh, associated with the Church of uh, Latter Day Saints, Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, um, above free expression. So they get a warning rating from Fire, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's you know they're taking advantage. They're a private school. They don't have to uh, abide by the First Amendment if they don't want to, and and so they make it clear uh, that they really don't intend to uh, to the students. And so, you know, I, I don't think any of us were very surprised to see them low in the overall rankings. They were dead last when looking at just liberals. Uh, and that's not surprising, I think, at all. Uh, but they wound up ranked fourth for conservatives. Um, and so just like Brown, this was kind of, you know, once we kind of did these sub rankings, it became clearer that something to do with the ideological makeup of the campus uh, is, is, a, is an important factor in how students experience it. BYU was the only campus where over 50% of students identified as conservative. Uh, and it had the lowest percentage overall of students identifying as liberal. And so it's not necessarily the mirror image of Brown because the percentage of conservative students was, you know, between 55 and 60%, um, if I remember correctly from off the top of my head, and the percentage of liberal students was around 30. And so at Brown, it's more like an 80-10 split. <laughs> so the split isn't as big, but you know when you kind of go through the data, you go through some of these um, open-ended responses that, that we also received to a question about self-censorship, you see kind of almost mirror image comments. Uh, so conservatives at Brown, you know, really feel stifled, et cetera. And Liberals at BYU essentially express the same types of feelings about the expression environment. And if you go to these schools' pages, when you go to the rankings, you'll be able to click on the school and it'll take you in depth about that school. And there's a section on each school's landing page called Student Voices that's, uh, you know, actually really interesting. Uh, It's kind of an endless scroll. It's how students responded to open-ended questions about the environment for free expression on their campus. And if you really want to do a deep dive, and I'm sure there could be some sort of a meta-analysis and probably will be one that's that's done at some point, some kind of qualitative analysis, uh, you can do that. And it also lists, you know, we, we don't want to provide personally identifiable information about the students, um, but it, it does tell you their class year. So there's some interesting stuff there. 
Yeah, we, you know, with, with those, there's there's a few uh, quotes we removed simply because they were they were quite personal and and clearly, if someone wanted to do a little digging, they could identify who the student was. Uh, so we removed those and and you know a handful of others that that kind of didn't really address the question. But overall, there's over five thousand of these open-ended responses, and they largely. Um, they really go with the conclusions in the report and they just kind of flesh it out and paint a much richer picture. And so I would encourage people, if you have the time to kind of scroll through some of those, uh, cause they're pretty interesting. So let's talk about the factors mm-hmm. or kind of the methodology that went into yeah. ranking these schools. So we had about, I think it was 26 questions that we asked every student. Mm-hmm. And then we created an index based on the responses to those questions that kind of broke them down by categories and gave them a weight. So one of the categories, which receives 40 points out of the 100 that each school could earn, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Sean, you're the data wizard, uh, was tolerance. Yeah. So schools can get up to 40 points of tolerance. So they can they can have a zero on it and they can get a maximum of 40. Um, and so the way we measure tolerance is this very standard way of from political science, political psychology, public opinion research. Uh, that's been around since the 1950s uh, with Samuel Stouffer's work. Effectively, we presented a handful of speakers indicating kind of what they intended to speak about. Most of these ideas were fairly controversial. Um, A few of them were, uh, you know, one or two I I, I would consider fairly benign, and and I'd be surprised if people were strongly opposed to these speakers. Uh, But I'd say the majority of them, it was very clear that this person was going to come to campus and say something fairly controversial. And the the standard method here is you typically ask people, you know, would you support or oppose or, or would you allow or not allow this speaker on campus? And w- one thing we did that was a little different from the the standard uh, Stouffer method was instead of just making it a binary response of allow, not allow, or, or support, oppose, we, we had a four-point scale ranging from strongly support to strongly oppose. But, you know, effectively, this is the typical almost gold standard way. You know, I hesitate to say gold standard necessarily because there's a there's a, another methodology that one could also use to assess tolerance, but it's, it's one of the two most commonly used ones in the literature on this topic. And so we, we basically assess them on that. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about some of those yeah. questions. So the question is, would you support or oppose your school allowing a speaker mm-hmm. on campus who promotes the following idea? And then we had, yep. I believe, uh, eight options. Eight different options, yeah. Uh, abortion should be completely illegal. The U.S. should support Israeli military policy. Transgender people have a mental disorder. Some racial groups are less intelligent than others. Christianity has a negative influence on society. Censoring the news media is necessary. Black Lives Matter is a hate group. All white people are racist. And again, the question was, would you support or oppose your school allowing a speaker on campus who promotes the following idea? So yeah, as you mentioned, controversial stuff, but uh, we've seen in our work that uh, these sorts of speakers often find their themselves on campus. And one of the findings from this is is actually quite shocking in every single category, a majority, I should say nearly every single category, (laughs) a majority of students would somewhat uh, oppose or strongly oppose their school allowing this speaker on campus. Nearly every category, the one category of speaker that students uh, weren't in the majority in opposing allowing them on campus was uh, the speaker that 
uh, argues that the U.S. should support Israeli military policy. And in that case, it was exactly 50 percent. Yeah, it's it's important to note that that was split 50-50. And, you know, sure, U.S. support of Israel is obviously a controversial issue. Particularly at the Ivy League schools. But yeah, and particularly at the Ivy League and elite schools. But at the the end of the day, I mean, that to me strikes me as a fairly benign uh, statement about foreign policy and that that only got 50% approval. Yeah, that's... I don't actually even know what to say about that. Well, uh, Sean, tell me a little bit about the uh, the elite schools and this question, because it seems to me that this was kind of a a, a hot debate at the elite schools. Yeah. So, you know, one of the other domains we assessed is is and we can segue to that domain yeah i'm kind of in a way segueing to that but it's like so we we also assessed um perceived openness or willingness uh to discuss controversial topics and with this we listed eight topics uh asked people to identify any of them that they whether or not they felt they could have an honest and open conversation on campus about them Uh, and so one of those eight topics was the israeli palestinian conflict so it's slightly different from Israeli military policy. But what we found was this question is basically, it's not what's the most difficult topic to discuss, because we asked them to ad- just simply identify any topics you find difficult. So more what I'm talking about now is kind of like a, a frequency count of of how many people identified that as a difficult topic. And so across the board, abortion and race were were kind of the two biggest ones. But there was this really interesting finding in the data whereby at eight to 10 schools, mainly Ivy League and other elite institutions, so some schools in California, University of Chicago as well, the students most frequently identified, by, by most frequently, I'm saying the largest percentage of students, on it was the largest percent on that campus, identified the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as difficult to discuss. Um, and this was borne out in if, if one goes through those open-ended comments, you could see at these more elite institutions like the Ivy League schools and a few others, uh, this, is, this is reflected in the student open-ended responses as well, where you, know, you have people in very much the same way that you, you see liberals and conservatives talking in, this, in, in these comments. You have people on both sides of the Israeli-Palestinian debate essentially saying, I can't talk about this. You know, the other side is... is will attack me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it, it kind of, those comments actually paint the picture even more, I think, than what the, 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 the raw numbers of the data show. So that, that top, and we're talking about the openness category, which was, yeah. you know, another group and that received equal weight mm-hmm. in our rankings as the tolerance category about, you know, the questions about speakers, uh, it received 40% or, or 40 points. Um, but race, you know, it's no surprise that mm-hmm. was a tough topic. People didn't feel super comfortable uh, or uh, talking about that topic on campus. It, they identified it as challenging. Forty-three percent of students did. And, uh, and I actually, fi- I imagine it would be uh, considerably higher uh, today, given after the George the Floyd of the summer. Uh, as as you mentioned in the beginning, we ended this survey basically right before all of the protests started. So we had 43% of college students identifying that as one topic that was challenging to discuss on campus, but that figure rises to 65% for black students. Mm-hmm. So um, the other kind of category here that was surprising to me was how difficult it was 
for uh, students to discuss abortion. Abortion was the most commonly identified topic that students found found challenging. Right, it's just one percentage point above forty four percent above uh, or forty five percent, excuse me, above race. Yeah, and there were with that there were also some interesting kind of regional. You know, we didn't we didn't find too many. I think regional differences when we looked at the data nationally, but when we started digging into the specific schools, we found some interesting patterns there where abortion was was clearly a very sensitive topic at a number of schools um, that would be considered, quote, in the South uh, by the U.S. Census regions. And race was typically more prominent, again, at, at, at kind of similar schools where the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was prominent. And again, I can also say I'll return to kind of those. I really think that the, the student responses are a very rich source of, of information for people if you want to spend the time going through them. Both the abortion and race issues, uh, this again is borne out in the comments um, on race. You often will come across comments of, of black students or other of people of color uh, commenting on how it's very difficult to discuss these issues when they are clearly the either the one or, or one of the only people of their race and ethnicity in the classroom or on the campus even. With abortion, what I found interesting was at a number of campuses, there were a lot of pro-choice individuals who in, in their in their comments effectively were conveying that they felt they couldn't discuss this issue because there frequently are pro-life advocates or protesters that kind of show up on campus uh, and, and are very intimidating to them effectively like they they you know they they stand in the quad or or the quote free speech alley or zone and they can be very intimidating to the students and so that was um i I think that's a very rich source of information if you kind of go to those comments and see that the so those are the two uh main categories as part of our index as Mm -hmm. part of our methodology but you know accounting for eight percent or eight points is self-expression yep uh where students were asked whether they quote, personally ever felt you could not express your opinion on a subject because of how students, a professor, or the administration would respond. Some interesting stuff here too, Sean, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is effectively, I mean, if you want to, you know, we call it self-expression in there, but this is effectively a question that gets at the concept of self-censorship, which, you know, in academic literature, it's typically defined as, you know, you're you're not expressing yourself, not because... It's not because you don't feel knowledgeable enough about the topic, because that's kind of a good reason maybe to not express yourself. Uh, it's not because of, you know, oh, I'm just not interested in this and, and I don't really have a dog in this fight. It is the, re- the reason or, or self-censorship, the way it's defined is it's in response to fear of social sanction. So this question uh, is an attempt to get at that. Uh, we found that 60% of students could recall at least uh, one incident where this occurred. Um, Again, and, and so the open-ended responses I've been mentioning are that they are obtained as a follow-up to this question. So anyone who said, yes, I can recall uh, an instance where I self-censored, they were then asked to describe it. And that's also very rich when you kind of go through these comments. You see um, a few dominant themes kind of emerge and, and I'll say, you know, this is, this is me having gone through these comments. This isn't done with a rigorous content analysis or anything like that. I, I'd love to do that with this data set uh, and hope to. And our listeners can, can go and look at them themselves. Yeah, they, you, the can, you can go look at them themselves and see if uh, 
you know, my impressions are, are you know, fairly accurate or, or if you think they're completely off the wall, you can you can see that, too. Um, but what has emerged uh, to me is, is, you know, there's a handful of themes, but there's a there does seem to be this general climate where people th- there's essentially confirmation for this idea of a spiral of silence on campus where students are aware of kind of what the dominant opinion is around them uh, and if their opinions in the minority they are far more, it, it, they convey that they're far more reluctant to express it and, and they often will hide it. So one of the things we, we found in the survey is that uh, campuses are predominantly liberal with a few yep. exceptions uh, and that our survey responses show that students who identify as Republican are mm-hmm. significantly more likely to report a history of self-censorship compared with students who yep. identify as Democrats. So it's 70% for Republicans uh, could recall an instance of self-censorship versus 54%. And if yep. you look at those who strongly identify as Republican versus those who strongly identify as Democrat, the results are even more pronounced. Uh, yep, they get they get sharper. And I mean, it's very similar results when we compare self-identified conservatives to self-identified liberals. The other group that is very likely to report an instance of self-censorship was black or African-American students at 63%, mm-hmm. you know, which is which is higher than, of course, the, the, the total of 60% for all respondents. And you said you, you saw in the survey responses, the um, open-ended responses, that black or African-American students talked about their reluctance to speak up. Yeah, that was a fairly, it, w- it was fairly common to encounter um, open-ended responses where students were saying, look, as, as, a, as a minority, as a person of color, as, as a black individual at a primarily white institution, it's often very difficult for me to discuss certain things or, you know, displeasure at being quote, put on the spot as, you know, the, the one person in the class who can speak to some of these concerns, these experiences. Yeah. Yeah. But I'll also note what was really, another thing that was really interesting in going through some of those was regardless of whether the campus was predominantly liberal or a little bit more mixed, it almost didn't matter what the person's politics were. If they perceived that they were in the minority around them, they said they self-censored. So in terms of volume, there were far more comments about people saying, oh, well, you know, if I go against what, what the liberals think, I can't say anything, et cetera, et cetera, or they, they intimidate me. But that's simply because there's far more liberals on campus, I think. Yeah. Um, but there were plenty of comments from left-leaning students or liberal students who effectively said, well, when I'm around a lot of Republicans or a lot of conservatives, like I, I can't say anything. <laughs> yeah. So I want to move on to the next category now, which is yeah. administrative support, which accounts for 4% of our ranking weights or, or four points. Uh, and the administrative support section includes two questions. First, uh, the first one is, does your college administration make it clear to students that free speech is protected on your campus? And, you know, for the most part, students felt that their administrations did. 70% answered yes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, let me jump in and just say, actually, the self-expression topic that we just discussed is up to 12 points, not eight. Oh, sorry. We did. Yeah, we yeah, that's so that I just want to clarify that. But yeah, um, the majority of students did perceive and, and this was noted um, in a piece yesterday you know, Inside Higher Ed covered our, our, the release of our survey, and they, they interviewed Lara Schwartz, who, who's also done some great work in this space. And, and she made note of, of the fact that, you know, a large percentage of students do perceive their administration as being supportive of free speech and free expression and, and making efforts to establish 
that culture on campus. And I think kind of what that maybe suggests is maybe the issue is more with the other students and and those interactions than anything to do with like administrative policy. Um, that that might be far more of the area where uh, we might need to focus on, and and that that involves maybe developing more of a culture of free speech versus just having you know specific policies on the books. The other question, which kind of uh, is where the rubber hits the road, <laughs> I I should maybe say is is if there were a, a controversy surrounding uh, offensive speech, would your administration uh, come to the speaker's defense? Mm-hmm. Um, and, I'm, and I'm pulling up the uh, question here. I've, I've moved in my document, so I'm no longer at it. It, it was lower, I would say. Um, I, I think that one was between like 55 and 60% overall, if I remember. Yeah, so the, it was question 21. If a controversy over offensive speech were to occur on your campus, would the administration be more likely to defend the speaker's right to express their views or punish the speaker for making the statement. And 57% uh, of students said defend the speaker's right to express their views. That's a majority, but it's still concerning that 41% of students responded that the administration would punish the speaker for making the statement. Well, and I think it also perhaps shows a little bit of a disconnect where you have 70% saying the administration makes it very clear that they're going to uh, support free speech, free expression, etc., but then, as you just said, when the rubber hits the road, reduced percentage of students, like certainly still a majority, but but it's definitely lower, uh, actually think they will follow through on those those promises that they've made. Yeah. So, you know, pretty concerning stuff. And I, I, I want to get to the last category and then I want to yeah. look at some of the other data. The last category here is, of course, the fire speech code. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not only important what students perceive their campus environment to be like, but it's also important whether these campus actually maintain policies or speech codes that uh, do not comport with First Amendment standards and can be used to censor students. And uh, that accounted for, what was it, Sean? Do you, do you remember? So it, it's, uh, it can account for, uh, you can either, they'll, a school that has a green light rating will, will get four points added to their score. Uh, you get zero for a yellow and you will lose points. You'll lose four points for having a red or a warning. So it accounts for a range of eight. <laughs> yeah. And so green light means you maintain no policies that can be used uh, that are that can censor students um, mm-hmm. or that don't meet First Amendment standards. Or um, And then yellow light means that, you know, some of the policies are iffy and could be interpreted to uh, violate First Amendment standards. And then uh, red means they clearly and substantially restrict uh, yeah. or burden speech. So um, we've talked about our spotlight rating on the show many times. We don't need to go too in-depth to it. And, but on the rankings, we list what the ranking is or the rating is for for each school. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add, we we actually did, we, we this is the only component of the score that wasn't part of the survey. I mean, the, the fire ratings are, are work that fire's done separately. They've been around for a long time. Um, we tested a number of different models. I'm not going to really go into the nitty gritty of the statistics here because I don't think it's like the right forum for that. Um, But we tested the fit of a number of different models, um, some that included the fire ratings, some that did not. Um, We we found a model that fit well uh, that 
demonstrated that they accounted for it. It did explain a little bit of the variance. It had an, an, an impact. It had an effect. So we're confident that they should be included. Um, but as you could see, by the way, the, the scores are, are laid out. Openness and tolerance are the, the major components here. And those traditionally have long been known as, as things that are important to free speech. Um, and so the fire rating, while yes, it statistically is, is a notable component, it's still not worth that much for the overall score. But we verified that it's worth including. Yes. If anyone wants to interview uh, Sean about his statistical uh, analyses, uh, feel free to g- give him a ring. Anyway, the, the last two topics I want to talk about. Um, well, I guess the first presidential debate happened last night. So let's let's uh, start there. Um, we asked some questions about President Trump, former Vice President Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders. And one of the findings was astounding. Uh, nearly one third of students don't think Trump should be allowed to speak on campus. Uh, and that's 22% for Biden. Uh, Bernie had the highest support for being allowed to speak on campus uh, at 87%. So it was only 13% who didn't think he should be allowed. But uh, kind of shocking stuff. The president of the United States, nearly a third of people don't think yeah. he should be allowed on campus. Yeah. So, uh, well, uh, hey, I'll, I'll say these, uh, the questions about Trump and Biden, Bernie, uh, we also asked about Rush Limbaugh. And we also asked about uh, dating Trump. None of these actually go into the ranking. Not dating these Trump, but dating more, a Trump supporter. Yeah, these we'll, these were more current event questions that we included because we knew they'd be interesting to look at. Um, I, I will note, actually, Nico, that even though a third uh, don't support Trump coming on campus, it seems like based on our data, they are at least... Uh, noting that, well, he is the president and he should be allowed because Rush Limbaugh actually had the lowest level of support. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I'm surprised a lot of so, students so they know are who giving Rush him a little, They are noting that, well, it is the president. Maybe we, you know, probably, even if we don't like him, uh, probably should, you know, maybe let him come here and, and, and say what he's going to say. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the same time, I find that uh, both, but I find the figure for that. And uh, the, to me, the Biden one is actually even a little more surprising. Uh, 22% sounds low, but, you know, 22% of our sample of almost 20,000 people is a lot of students. And if we roughly approximate and say this is a decent approximation for what students in general across the country may think, that's a lot of people. <laughs> like, yeah, that's a lot of people who basically think Joe Biden should not be on campus, and that to me is actually even more surprising than the Trump thing. I actually kind of would have thought the Trump thing would have been higher. <laughs> Let's. You mentioned dating a Trump supporter, yeah. so fifty-five percent of people who disapprove. So we asked people, you know, if they approve or disapprove of of President Donald Trump. Fifty-five percent of people who disapprove of Donald Trump say it would be impossible or very difficult to date a Trump supporter. So a majority of people who disapprove of Donald Trump would find it impossible or very difficult to date a Trump supporter. On the other end, 11% of people who approve of Trump say it would be impossible or very difficult to date a Trump opponent. So kind of shocking there. Yeah. And and so I'll note, you know, just to make sure everyone's aware, if, you know, if you said you approve of Trump, you got the question about dating someone who disapproves. And if you, you know, said you disapprove, you get the question about, you know, et cetera. They, they, each person only got one of those questions. You know, that's a, it's a pretty shocking, it, it, on its face, it seems like shocking. It's actually fairly consistent with some other uh, polling data that's been done, um, both through um, Pew uh, asked a question about this at one point. Um, I believe the voter study group uh, also asked uh, something like this at one point. And the, these, this split is actually fairly consistent with what other 
polls have found, uh, those polls were not of college students, of course, they were more of the general public, but it found a very similar split. If people disapprove of Trump, they are far more likely to say it's it's very difficult to impossible or, or that they wouldn't, they flat out wouldn't date a Trump supporter. And then on the flip side, the percentage of people who approve of Trump saying they wouldn't be able to, you know, be with someone who's an opponent of him is, is typically a bit lower. So it's like, in a way, it's like shocking because it's kind of huge and it shows maybe that those, it's like those, the, the Trump approvers might be a little more open-minded on this issue here. Um, but <laughs> yeah, the, now it, we're it, running out. Yeah, of t- it's not, it's actually not that surprising when you, when you note that other polling outfits have found something similar. I want to close up here by talking about some of the hecklers veto questions that we have in the mm-hmm. survey. Yeah. Um, now these were shocking to me. We found that while a large majority of students say that violent tactics are never acceptable when protesting campus speakers, almost one in five consider using violence to stop a speech or other event on campus uh, as either always, sometimes, or rarely acceptable. 1% said always, 3% said sometimes, I think it's 13% said rarely. But, you know, even if you rarely think violence is acceptable to stop a speech on campus, I mean, you know, in those cases, probably the more extreme speakers. It's still That's still pretty significant. And uh, students at Ivy League schools were actually slightly more in favor of using violence to stop a campus speech with a total of 21% saying always, sometimes, or rarely. Did this surprise you, Sean? It, it did on some levels. And it, and, and on other levels, the, the figure of right around 20% is, is fairly consistent with prior data collected on this. Um, so there, there's been a number of you know, over the last like four or five years, I think this has become a question that has been interesting. And there's been a number of different outfits that have polled it. One of FIRE's earlier surveys strictly asked, would you commit violence? So like, would you personally do it? And like 1% said yes. But when you phrase it kind of the way we did on this survey, asking about, well, is it okay if someone does it? Like it doesn't necessarily have to be you. Uh, just if, if if someone does it, would you consider that acceptable? You know, when people have asked it that way, that typically finds fifteen to twenty percent of students saying, "Well, yeah, this is acceptable." Um, again, I you know I would you know taking it out of the context of the percentage seems to fit prior data. I find it very concerning for the same reasons that I brought up about the the Biden question. It's like when you think about how many college students there are in the country. 20%, if this is a rough and, and you know fairly accurate approximation, that's a lot. Again, a lot of students see this as acceptable. Maybe, again, you know, most of them maybe only in rare cases, but I see there being a very big difference from saying never and rarely. Minorities <laughs> have a way uh, of, and when I say minorities, I mean it as like the number of people uh, yeah. have a way of shaping discourse on campus. Uh, mm-hmm. It's usually a minority of students who are willing to engage in a heckler's veto and willing to shout down a speaker, block an entrance mm-hmm. to a campus event. Uh, yeah. But you know, let's say you have just one in five. So you say you have 20 students. That's enough to really foil an event. Yeah. If you know we're talking about you know 20 out of 100 uh, and then you amplify that you know, across the, you know, some of these student populations, which at Indiana, I remember it was like 30,000 students. Yeah. You know, some of these campuses, uh, yeah, 20% or 50, even if it's only 15% on that campus. Well, when you have 
30,000 or more undergraduates enrolled, that is still a significant number of people. I, I think we see through other data that's been collected out there, you know, the Hidden Tribes group or the Hidden Tribes report from More in Common um, has hit on this a bit, like their, their research project. They've done some follow-ups on that. They've hit on, look, the extremes on on both the left and the right are a small percentage of people, but they're often the loudest. Yep. And And it seems like they tend to drive and dominate much of the conversation. So we asked four questions about this and we said, you know, so the, the meat of the question was how acceptable would you say it is for students to engage in the following action to protest a campus speaker? We asked them blocking other students from entering a campus event, shouting down a speaker, or trying to prevent them from speaking on campus, using violence to stop a speech or event on campus, uh, and then tearing down a flyer, uh, removing flyers or other advertisements for an upcoming speaker or event on campus. These are all things we've seen happen on campus campus um you know some some pretty surprising results here uh especially when you break it down by ivy leagues or liberal or conservative more than 60 percent of extreme liberals say it's always or sometimes acceptable to shout down a speaker compared to 15 percent for extreme conservatives Mm -hmm. 37 percent of ivy league students say that shouting down our speaker is always or sometimes acceptable compared to 26 percent of students not enrolled in ivy league colleges on uh, removing flyers, it's 37 for Ivy Leagues, 28% for non-Ivy League colleges. And then there was almost one in five Ivy League students find it always or sometimes acceptable to block other students from entering a campus event uh, compared to roughly one in 10 for non-Ivy League. So uh, some pretty shocking findings here. Sean, how were these or were these not incorporated into the overall ranking? So, so the protest questions are not incorporated into the overall rankings. Um, the models we ran, um, you know, those weren't, quote, part of a, a good fitting model. Um, but, you know, we talk about them in the report because I think, and I, you know, I know Fire thinks it's, a, it's very concerning, some of these figures. But yeah, they are not actually in the overall ranking or score. Yeah. But I, I still think the figures, uh, even for tearing down flyers, are, are concerning. Yeah, they tell tell you something about the climate. Well, so yeah, so I was just gonna say, I, I recall there was one of the open ended comments, and I, I it may I, it may actually not be on the dashboard because I, I'm not remembering correctly or not if it had kind of like too much identifying information, but the gist of it was effectively the school tried to punish us for ripping down flyers advertising this event, <laughs> and stu- the student presumably thought that that. Was an was exercise okay. of their free expression to to remove yeah. or vandalize other not realizing lives. that by doing that you're kind of you know infringing on other people's ability to even be aware of this event and and you know hopefully attend it yeah uh, so I'm not sure if that one actually appears in our dashboard because I'm given the gist of the quote and I actually think it was removed because there was kind of it was a little too specific it was like this school tried to punish us for doing this and you know reveal the it's like you could find out who that is probably yeah. <laughs> um, but the gist of the comment was effectively, oh, this is okay. <laughs> <laughs> we need to leave it here because I got to head to a meeting. Sure. But, um, <laughs> you know, for our for our listeners, we're, we're going to continue diving in. There's so much in this yeah. survey. Largest ever survey of college students about free speech ever conducted. You incorporate the ratings uh, into that. You have the open-ended questions that Sean has been talking about throughout this conversation. There's just a lot of meat here. And Sean, mm-hmm. on, our, on our news desk blog at thefire.org, uh, is going to be digesting and digging deeper into some of these and, and providing more analysis, including comparisons to pre-existing studies mm-hmm. uh, 
in the coming weeks and months. And like I said, at the top of the show, we look forward to hopefully expanding the survey 55 colleges. Now there's been talk of doing it for 200, 250. Uh, We'll see. Uh, It's kind of an expensive project. (laughs) The the choice is not entirely mine, Uh, but (laughs) if it was up to us, I think we'd already be doing that. Um. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I kind of need a vacation first. This is, and I'm sure you do too. You know, that would be, that would be ramping up the start. I mean, yes, our goal is to, We'd love to continue. We would love to do this again and kind of continue to do this. And through doing it, we hope to get really good feedback on our measures and and what we're asking about, et cetera. And you know, we're very open to, you know, hey, maybe we should also ask a question about this or we should assess that. Uh, we look at this kind of as the start of assessing this. We encourage other people to also try to assess campuses in this way. Um, and and we look at it really as like kind of the start of the conversation of how to how to get our heads around this problem. Yeah, it's the beta test of sorts. But uh, Sean, I really appreciate you coming on the show, talking a little bit about it. And uh, you know, again, for our listeners who want to learn more, you can follow Sean's commentary on Fire's blog at thefire.org and visit speech.collegepulse.com to really dig into the data. You can download the report. It's a 67-page report. You can play with the interactive dashboard to look at all the different schools' uh, rankings, uh, their various variables. Then uh, for those schools, uh, you can search by enrollment size, by cost, by conference, by distance from your home. Uh, And then there's an insights tab that allows you to dig into the data for each particular question. So speech.collegepulse.com. All this information is also available on FIRE's website at thefire.org, as well as some of the past student surveys that we've done. Uh, We did three previous uh, national surveys of students. So check that out. And Sean, again, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So To Speak by following us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We take email feedback if you need to get in touch with me at so to speak at the fire.org. Those emails do go to me. I see them all. So I uh, appreciate and we'll try to respond to any questions or comments that we receive. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. That's one of the best ways that we can attract listeners to the show. So until next time, thanks again for listening.